Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at a small slice of American writing using the wonderful Library of America as my source material. And right now, I am continuing my little mini-series on turn-of-the-century black writers. And this can be combined with the series I did about a year ago now on Harlem Renaissance writers. So together, we've got about five volumes of the Life of America covering black writers from, from roughly the same period of American history. And this is going to be the last one I'll be looking at for quite a while. I'll have to get to know Zora Neale Hurston at some time, um, but it probably won't be for a while um, that I get to her because i got some other things on deck. So this episode will be the beginning of a series, short series, probably seven, eight episodes on the works of James Weldon Johnson. The Library of America only published one work of his writing, and he wasn't primarily known as a writer. He only wrote one novel, the autobiography of Max Colored Man, which is so short, we will just cover it in one episode today. The uh, We also have his Along the Way, which is his autobiography. He wrote many poems. He wrote music. Uh, he was a lawyer. So his career is kind of mixed and quite, and he, you know, he was in many areas. He was active in many areas. And not, except for the autobiography of Next Color Man, not necessarily known primarily as a, as a, as a novelist or a, a writer of fiction. Uh, very active in politics as well and in journalism. So we'll be looking at some of those works as well. So we'll start with the autobiography of Next Colored Man, which is the novel about passing. And we've explored that with other works such as The House Behind the Cedars and Plum Bun. This one has a lot more in common, I think, with House Behind the Cedars in the way it addresses the issue of, of passing. And while the Harlem Renaissance writers were a little bit more critical, perhaps, of passing, especially... Fawcett in Plumbun, where she shows there's really kind of an authenticity that people, you know, should kind of give up on and try to get to a more true identity. For people like Chestnut and, and Johnson, passing was something practical and was a logical choice given the political and social realities on the ground for, for black Americans. So we'll look at that. Then we have Along the Way, which is actually pretty long. It, it makes up the bulk of this volume. So probably four episodes on that. Then we'll look at a bunch of his editorials from the New York Age, which is a journal he wrote for a lot. Some essays, and then a selection of his book, Black Manhattan, and then his poems and songs. And by the way, this is the first time, I think, yeah, I think this is the first time that the bumper for an old writer was actually written by the writer. So that... But you heard at the beginning was a little small subnet of Lift Every Voice and Sing, which is a song that he wrote in 1900 in commemoration of, of Abraham Lincoln to celebrate his birthday. And it's, it's ever since then been a very important uh, piece of African-American music, sometimes called the Black National Anthem or the African-American National Anthem. Uh, I'm not quite sure how it's always called, but maybe the Negro National Anthem depends on the time and, and who you talk to, I suppose. And him, obviously, now Johnson himself was not particularly religious, and that's a theme he deals with in his autobiography. But for now, let's, let's, um, I'm not going to say much about his own biography at this point, though, because we will cover it at length when we look at along this, along the way. He, <laughs> I mean, it's a long book. It's, it's for uh, autobiography. It's, it's, it's probably the longest 
autobiography I've ever read. Um, well, I guess I read Grant's memoirs. I don't know if they, they fit, but it is a lengthy work and it covers a lot of different aspects of his life. It's, it can be a bit ponderous, I think. And, you know, the thing is, there's very little writing I don't like or actively dislike. I know there's some people who, you know, they'll read a book and they'll say, I just don't like it or I can't get through it. That's I've never really had that. Maybe I'm just too liberal in my attitude towards towards writing. There's books I won't come back to, I'm sure. And there's books that I like more than others. But I'm always kind of curious about works. And I'm always eager to get into other writers' minds. So even if I maybe disagree with them intellectually, I, I always find things to like about most writing I approach. And that's true with Johnson, too. But I, I will say that this particular volume was a bit harder for me to get through than like Chestnut or or Du Bois or pretty much any other volume I looked at in this series. So it's a little bit more of a chore. And I think a big reason for that was this autobiography, which is just really, really ponderous. And, you know, it's it's very detailed and maybe a bit too much. Right. In my view. In contrast, though, the autobiography of the ex-colored man is a very tight work. It's very sharp. It's got a very clear theme. It's a quick read. You can pretty much read it in one sitting if you want. It's, it probably just takes a couple hours. Um, and it's kind of fun. I, I I like, you know, the issue of passing we've dealt with so many times in this podcast and the works I mentioned before. And we've talked about it from time to time and a lot in the works of Charles Chestnut. So I, I don't know if there's that much more to, to, to say about that. I mean, I'll, I'll get to why this particular character passed and made that decision and we kind of interrogate it. And I know there's debate to what degree this character should even have been considered ever colored, you know, and because so much of his life, he just kind of lived with a very flexible racial identity, right? It, it seems he often was able to choose his racial identity. And this is something he's confronted with by one important character, you know, towards the end of the novel. So I know there's some kind of conversation about that, but, you know, the reality is, is when he reached a certain age and he was given the choice of living in America as a black man or a white man, he chose to live as a white man and he really never looks back. And so the, no the, the novel itself covers this fictional character's life up to pretty much that moment. There's a small kind of epilogue chapter, the final chapter of the book in which he talks a little bit about his life since making that choice. But, you know, it's really something we're not interested in. So he's interested in his life as a black man up to that point where he, he made this choice. But the fact that he could make the choice without too much difficulty is something we didn't really we haven't seen before. I mean, for Charles Chestnut's character in The House Behind the Cedars, for the woman who passes, it's a traumatic, horrible experience for her. For the her brother, it's something he does a little bit easier with less trouble, but he doesn't, he has to give up a lot to do that. He has to give, give up, give up connection to his family. This character, it, it's shown as just kind of a choice he makes at one point, And the, the, we don't see the consequences of that, partially because his mother dies. He doesn't really have much of a relationship with his father. So he has really nothing to lose. He has no, he's not connected to any communities and he's a very mobile person. And I think that's something that makes him a little different than some of the characters we've seen for both the character in Plum Bun and the characters in The House Behind the Cedars passing required kind of leaving your hometown, leaving the place where people knew you. For the character here, who doesn't have a name, he's just the ex-colored man, you know, leaving 
or passing was just a choice he could make because no one knew him. He was basically a wanderer for much of his life. And I think that's one of the things that makes this work rather fun and interesting for me is we really get a window into a very mobile person, a person who's able to take on many different careers and move around the country and eventually move around the world and spend time in Europe and, you know, explore different jobs for himself. And, you know, something very bad happens to him fairly early in the story that makes it impossible for him to go to college and that, in a sense, cuts off some of his potential. But it also opens up all the other doors for him. And it's it's something you look back on, and you're like, it, it wasn't that horrible what happened to him, you know, it, as much as he was hurt by it when it happened at the time. You know, it was something he could move on from, and he had enough talent that he could kind of flip between different jobs. So I think that's kind of, a, and the things he does, I think, are all very interesting. So that's one thing I really like about this particular novel. Now, one thing to say about the text itself, it was originally published anonymously. It was published in 1912, and uh, and he didn't put his name on it. And people at the time, you know, a lot of people read it and probably assumed it was a real story and didn't didn't realize it was a novel. Not much. There are some parallels to Johnson's old life, but but not that many. Not enough to really be notable. Yeah, both characters have musical talents, and I think both I both well both the character and his. Johnson himself had musical talent and, and cultivated that actively in their life. And I think Johnson, I'm, I, I want to make sure I'm not confusing the two stories, but I remember the cigar rolling stuff from Johnson's autobiography as well. So he had some kind, he knew something about that and he brings that into play in the novel. But, you know, Johnson never tried to pass in his, his life as far as I know. And it's, you know, so it's 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 not autobiographical in the, in terms of the author. Only later does he acknowledge that he wrote it. I think it's two years after the original publication. He comes out as the author of it. So, anyways, um, that that's the work. Oh, one more thing about in in terms of introduction here. That one thing you'll read, especially after picking up Du Bois, is that you realize right away that Johnson very much accepts most of what Du Bois says about the veil and double consciousness, he doesn't really use the language, um, the language that Du Bois uses in The Souls of Black Folk. But here's what he says in a preface to the novel. Quote, it is very likely that the Negroes of the United States have a fairly correct idea of what the white people in the country think of them. For that opinion has been for has for a long time been and is still considered stated. But they are themselves more and less a sphinx to the whites. It is curiously interesting and even vitally important to know what are the thoughts of 10 millions of them concerning the people among whom they live. It is in these pages. It is as though a veil has been drawn aside. The reader is given a view of the inner life of the Negro in America and is initiated into the Freemasonry, as it were, of the race, end quote. So he does use the word veil, but he doesn't use double consciousness. But that's essentially what he's talking about here is this kind of dualism in black identity of being the problem, being set apart from American life, but also being part of American life. And this contributes both to more to white people not really understanding the black experience and always kind of seeing it as problematic. And it contributes to this divided consciousness among black people that limits their own capacity to, to, to mature as a people and mature as individuals and, and make the most out of their life. At least that's Du Bois's argument. I think Johnson accepts it by and large. In fact, I think Johnson was pretty active in the NAACP, so he would have been in contact with Du Bois. 
So as the novel opens in chapter one, we first get a confession that this is the great secret of his life that he's been guarding. We well, never tells his name, so that kind of takes out some of the punch of this, but of course it is a novel. He talks about how he was born in a small town of Georgia. Now, one thing we learn early on in this story is he doesn't really see himself as black. And that was, you know, that's common for most. I mean, Du Bois talked about that in The Passing of the Firstborn, right? That race is something that one grows up into, and it's something that affects people throughout their whole life, but it's not maybe not something they're conscious of till later. The veil is something you grow into. And that's why that chapter in The Souls of Black Folk was so bittersweet, because... Du Bois, you know, felt sorrow for the death of his son, but also at some level felt that he was able to escape the veil to a certain degree. And he just talks about the minutiae of his early life, where he lived with his mom. Oh, by the way, uh, Fawcett um, didn't like this book and said it was a insult to black womanhood. And I don't quite know why she thinks that or why she thought that perhaps it has to do with the portrayal of the ex-colored man's mother and but i don't know i'll have to think about that a little bit more from a very young age though the ex-colored man becomes fascinated with music and starts plucking away at that the piano in his house and so a big part of his early life is really his education and he really was kind of on a college prep track although that's not where he ends up in his life and music and these two things come together uh, and they're all talked about early on in the chapter or in the book and an interesting thing here is how important physical characteristics were to how his classmates were described in the school like one character was called redhead another was called shiny and he talks about their various skills in each as in any classroom each student has their own fortes and abilities but he has these very physical characteristics you know talked about as part of how he identifies these characters another thing we learn and this is something the ex-colored man as a young boy is not really conscious of is how strong race was in the consciousness of his schoolmates this was an integrated school i were just reminded again that that jim crow was something that was established in the early in the late 19th and early 20th century so people born at the time of the ex-colored man was born would have sometimes gone to integrated schools and there was of course schools for black students too so there it was mixed throughout the south until until the 20th century when you really had much firmer lines imposed by the jim crow laws so this this school was um integrated and the ex-colored man talks about his classmates in in racial terms without being necessarily conscious of his own racial background quote there were several black and brown boys and girls in my school and several of them were in my class one of the boys strongly attracted my attention from the first day i saw him his face was as black as night but shone as though it was polished he had sparkling eyes and when he opened his mouth it displayed glistening white teeth it struck me at once as appropriate to call him shiny face or shiny eyes or shiny teeth i spoke to him often by one of these names to the other boys the terms were finally merged into shiny and that is the name he answered good naturally during the balance of his school years and he had a, he was a good student but he was racialized by everyone else and there's songs that the kids sung that were basically racial epithets in song form now where it really comes to him that he's black is at one point the teacher asked all the white students to stand for a moment and the ex-colored man stands and 
the teacher says, no, you have to sit down. You're not white. And that that leads to the climax of the first chapter when he comes home and really confronts his mother about his background and who he is and his race. And he uses the N-word here, so I'm not going to repeat it. But he basically asks his mom, mom, am I black? And she finally, she breaks down and cries and admits that that he is. Now, of course, his mother is black and the father was white and she had a fear. I guess that's why Fawcett was upset with this book, because it because it kind of emphasized this illicit relationship between a black woman and a white man. But, you know, the father's in and out of his life. I mean, he does show up sometimes and, and he actually gives him this coin with this with kind of a necklace with a hole in it that he wears around his neck. But he's not really part of his life. So we have this this image of of the broken black family, um, the single mother. And, and I guess that was mostly what Fawcett's frustration was, or maybe also more deeply the fact that she hides or she's kind of very cagey about her son's racial identity. And she lets him get so old without really talking about him, about who he is and about race and this kind of makes him a little bit unprepared for the things that's going to happen later in his life nevertheless i think his his youth was fairly prosperous he became a fairly famous local musician he you know interacted with girls on a fairly normal basis he even you know got quite close with his duet mate i'll talk about that in later chapters and eventually he he is able to go on to college so she didn't do a horrible job I think. And, you know, I can understand her not wanting to talk to her son too much about, about her father, given the nature of, of how he, you know, how he's conceived. But nevertheless, the, the father's there as just kind of a visitor who comes into his life once in a while. And, th and that's a big impact on the ex-colored man's early life. And after this, early in chapter two, we get uh, his reflection on what this meant for him. And he talks more broadly about what racial consciousness means for, for black people. Um, and he compares it to like the first time he was spanked, like the first time a parent commits violence against their child and what psychological trauma that has. He compares it to that and the emotions in him. And, you know, just such a profound moment in his in his young life. But here's what he said more broadly about this, quote, And this is the dwarfing, warping, distorting influence which operates upon each colored man in the United States. He is forced to take his outlook on all things, not from the viewpoint of citizen or a man or even a human being, but from the viewpoint of a colored man. It is wonderful to me that the race has progressed so broadly as it has, since most of its thought and all its activities must run through the narrow neck of one funnel. It is this, too, which makes the colored people of this country in reality a mystery to whites. It is a difficult thing for a white man to learn what a colored man really thinks, because generally, with the latter and an additional and different light, he must be brought to bear on what he thinks, and his thoughts are often influenced by considerations so delicate and subtle that it would be impossible for him to confess to explain them to one of the opposite race. This gives to every colored man, in proportion to his intellectuality, a sort of dual personality. There is one phrase in which he has disclosed only in the Freemasonry of his own race. I've often watched with interest and sometimes with amazement even ignorant colored men under cover of broad grins and minstrel antics maintain this dualism in the presence of white men. So it's, it's, it's basically the veil again, Du Bois's veil, but it's, it's kind of reflected on in different ways. Um, so chapter two is mostly about 
I mean, it talks about that, but then he moves on to, to really discuss his broadening education, his reading, his reading habits, and how he kind of developed a curiosity for knowledge on his own outside of school, reading the Bible, reading other books in his mother's library. His father continues to come in and out of his, in out of his life. Now, the most really important transformation in his life at this point is really his artistic development and his, you know, in, he really takes off as a kind of a local celebrity for his ability to play the piano and he develops this relationship with a young girl a little bit older than him i think but he kind of falls in love with her so it's a kind of a a cute little romance in which he he loves the older talented girl and she plays the violin and they do these violin sonatas and and i guess yeah i guess violin sonatas where you have piano accompaniment and, and the violin Quote, she was my first love, and I loved her only as a boy loved. I dreamed of her. I built air castles for her. She was the incarnation of every beautiful heroine I knew. When I played the piano, it was to her. Not even did music furnish an adequate outlet for my passion. I bought her new notebook, and to sing her praises made my first and last attempt at poetry. Now, this this girl is just referred to as the brown-eyed girl, and this this mayor, this, this relationship doesn't go anywhere, and it is kind of a, a bit of an unrequited love. But it is the ex-color man's first um, love affair. But we really see in chapter two him developing into a into an artist and into a fairly talented one. Now the other important event in this chapter is he meets his father for the second to last time, and he plays his mute piano for him. He plays some Chopin for him, and it's a kind of a important moment for him because he is so nervous about meeting this fan. He, he's like introduced as this really. This, this white gentleman, very formal, and he's a bit intimidated by me and his father, but he is able to play this Chopin piece, and he kind of asks his father if he's going to be around and stay in his life, and the father says, no, i got to go on to business, and then he's he's out the door, and you know, he'll, he'll meet him again just once, but it, it's not he's not going to be an important factor in his life from that point on, so he was just kind of a, a ghost in the early part of his life. Now, one reason this novel's been criticized is because it, it basically shows the man going from freedom developed through education and uplift and talent. Um, he is a very talented young man. And then kind of re-enter slavish relationships with white people before finally entering into white society and abandoning his white identity. So this becomes the inverse of the narrative of freedom and then developing of African-American consciousness. And from that foundation, you know, well, uplifting the race and doing one's part for that you know so sometimes called like the reverse slave narrative there's part of that there i see this criticism very clearly as we'll get to in later chapters but it's really in chapter three where you see on what a promising future this this young man has it's it's really more about his education um talks about his reading of of kind of intellectualizing his experience as a as a young black man first he starts to read american history and he starts to notice that black people are not really included in the story. And he reads Uncle Tom's Cabin and gets a perception about what slavery was like there. He's still a little aloof from this because he never quite was comfortable seeing himself as as, as black. But he's starting to learn about it kind of in his head in, in an intellectual way. He said of Uncle Tom's Cabin, 
It opened my eyes to who and what I was and what my country considered me. In fact, it gave me my bearing. There was no shock. It took the whole revelation in a kind of stoical way. One of the greatest benefits I derived from reading the book was that I could afterwards talk frankly with my mother on all questions which had been vaguely troubling in my mind. As a result, she was entirely freed from reserve and often herself brought up the subject, talking of things directly touching her life and mine and the things which she had that come down to her through the old folks. What she told me had interested and even fascinated me, and what may seem strange kindled in me a strong desire to see the South. She spoke to me quite frankly about it, about herself and my father, or my father and myself. She, the sewing girl of my father's mother, he, an impetuous young man home from college, I, the child of this unsanctioned love. She told me even of the principal reasons for our coming North. Oh, yeah, he went North. I forgot to mention that. Uh, he was actually uh, left, left Georgia. For his schooling. That's why he was in integrated schools. So what else in here? So he, he goes on and he, he skips over very quickly his high school years. And uh, his mother was not the most healthy, had health problems. And those are referenced. And there's that, that kind of cloud overhanging. And his mom leaves his life fairly early. So helps him achieve kind of his independence early in his life. He goes on a concert tour or he tries to go on a concert tour to raise money to go to college and this is fairly successful and he does go around plays music and it's mostly a charity for him to go to college but it's it's kind of like a fairly nice moment for him where he does have these concerts that that raise some money so he's able to get a bit of money for college 200 dollars, and he decides he's going i think actually 400 dollars. so he's got this cash with him which is going to pay for his schooling and he decides to go to atlanta university and so he the chapter three ends with him leaving for for school in Atlanta, back to back to the South, back to Georgia, and this is something he wants, and it's something he never really quite gives up during his entire the entire narrative. Always wanting to return to America and return to the South to kind of I, I think it's partially that he comes to to realize he's black in his head and not really through his heart and his experiences. I mean, there's a few childhood experiences he has, but. It's something he kind of thinks through and he gets through books. He understands black America more through books than through his through his life. And and so he gets this curiosity about the South. And eventually it's going to be his travels to the South, which convince him that I don't want any part of being black in America. But it's something he has to experience firsthand. He goes to the. To the South kind of with his intention. So he goes to Atlanta University and. And that kind of opens up a new phase in next colored man's life. Now, in chapter four, he gets to Atlanta and he doesn't much like it. And his initial impression of the South is a bit disappointed. Um, of course, you see in the city, but probably his impression of the South comes from the books he read and the stories he heard from his his mother. Quote, when I reached Atlanta, my steadily increasing disappointment was not lessened. I found it a big, dull red town, this dull red color of that part of the South. I was then seen had much, I think, to do with the extreme depression of my spirits. No public squares, no fountains, dingy streetcars, and with the exception of three or four principal thoroughfares, unpaved streets. It was raining when I arrived, and some of these unpaved streets were absolutely impassable. You know, it's still a fairly undeveloped place. You know, the New South was a project that took a long time. Um, to be sure, if you remember, the Tennessee Valley Authority during the Great Depression was part the to bring electricity to much of the South that didn't even have it yet, and that was in the mid-1930s so we get these scenes of of atlanta which are are kind of nice to read and we see this the contrast between the old and the 
undeveloped and the kind of even the almost the pre-modern aspects of the southern city and then some of the modern aspects too the railroad station the streetcars the new businesses and so there is the roots of the new south kind of bubbling up in the atlanta that the ex-colored man sees it's still not very impressive to him though now i guess just to jump directly to the plot he he meets a porter on the train uh the pullman's porter and of course these were black men who worked on the trains as the porters and they they're an interesting class of people they were early on unionized one of the first most important all black unions were pullman porters making them very politically active and significant all the way up to the a randolph activism in the 1940s and 50s they're also interesting because they move around a lot and they, they have kind of have networks in cities. And it's something we talked about when we looked at Home from Home to Harlem by Claude McKay. And he kind of emphasizes to the, the mobility of the Pullman porters, how they lived in different cities and had different, different networks in different cities and often new people. And so the ex-colored man befriends this porter and the porter takes him to a boarding house where he can kind of chill out for a while the border boarding house guy doesn't really want him to stay long term because he makes his money from these Pullman porters but he's allowed to stay for a few days he puts his stuff in in like a chest or, or in his bag or something and goes out and explores the city when he comes back he finds his money was stolen including the, the 400 dollars he's going to use to pay for going to to college so this one event and he tries to get his money back but the boarding house guys like you know whatever it's your money I, I you know i'm not responsible for lost property and so he's broke really has no way of making a living no way of going to college for sure so this kind of ends his his hopes for higher education now we get a bit of a contrast in this chapter too between i guess he when he's walking around Atlanta, he has some racial pride he sees black owned businesses and middle class black people walking in the streets and he thinks that you know, this might be the future of the black race. And maybe it's not so bad to be black in America. But then his experience with this porter, who obviously was the one who stole his money, kind of tampers that. And he he start, you know, he gets a very different image of, of black America through this personal affront. And so, you know, it's it's a bit of a confusing moment for him. And he's also getting kind of two images of, of manhood, I guess. One is the kind of the working class image of manhood, which he to some degree embraces later on in the story he does become a bit of a gambler and a drinker and a you know that kind of guy but he still has this kind of image of the ideal man from his father the few meetings he had with his father and that's why he kind of was attracted to and gravitated to these middle class black people finely dressed educated owning businesses but unfortunately that kind of that path to education gets closed off to him because his money is stolen and you know he doesn't have a mother in his life anymore and he, you know, the charity concert was all his money. It was everything he had. So he's dead broke at this point. So in chapter five, he's eventually find accommodations and he meets all these Cubans who are living. He goes to Jacksonville, right? And he meets these, these Cubans who he really kind of befriends and gets to know them. And they basically recruit him to work in the cigar factory in Jacksonville. And he takes the job and, you know, he figures this is a way he can maybe make money. Maybe he can, you know, maybe go back to college someday. But he really likes this life among these working class Cubans. 
Um, and he's learning this very important skill. You know, cigar rolling was a skilled industry. I mean, even Gompers, right, the head of the AFL for a long time, had to start as a cigar roller. Right. Of course, his first job is as a stripper. So the different jobs in the cigar factory were like those who dealt with the tobacco leaves. Right. That's the unskilled work where you the strippers had to cut the stems off the tobacco leaves. Then you have like the binders and then the, the rollers are the ones who were really, that was really the high skilled work was the rollers. And he kind of works his way up there. He learned Spanish. And, and we again, we're reminded how actually quite brilliant the ex-colored man is and how easily he takes to skills and and talent how just how talented he was and that gives much of the early part middle part of this novel a feeling of a bit of a waste and you know you kind of regret that he didn't go on to college um, but he makes a life for himself in the cigar factory he even gets and there's a lot of interesting details here about what life is like in the cigar factories for instance this um quote after i had been in the factory for a little over a year i was repaid for all the efforts i had put forth to learn spanish by being selected as the reader the reader was quite an institution in all cigar factories which employ spanish-speaking workmen he sits in the center of a large room in which the cigar makers works and reads to them for a certain number of hours each day all the important news from the papers and whatever else he may consider worth would be interesting he often selects an exciting novel and reads it in daily installments he must, of course, be of a good voice, and he must also have a good reputation among the men for intelligence, for being well-posted and having in his head a stock of varied information. He is generally the final authority on all arguments which arise, and in the cigar factory, these arguments are many and frequent. So that's a really little fascinating vignette. And there's more in this chapter, it's, or this paragraph. It's a whole, almost a page long, that talks about this role of the reader and the social dynamics in the cigar factory among the Spanish-speaking workers. Um, and then he talks about how even he could keep up with his piano playing and he rented a piano and was able to play music for his co-workers. And he kind of really makes a life for himself in, in Jacksonville. Now, this is the first chance he really has to see Southern black life in any detail because he lives here for, for a number of years. And he starts to see black life as really divided up into classes. And he talks about the different classes. He says, the colored people may be roughly divided into three classes, not so much in respect to themselves and to respect, as in to respect to their relations with whites. So he divides them up into like the desperate class, the servant class, and kind of the, the mi middle, he doesn't call them the middle class, but these would be the independent workers, the craftspeople, and the educated people. And so the desperate class are barroom loafers, ex-cons, people in the lumber mills those were kind of migrant workers throughout the south and as the south was the new south was exploiting the lumber resources of the south they recruited a class of lower class black men usually who'd go um you know around in the lumber camp would move around and these were kind of like little shanty towns that would be moved throughout the southern woods this is actually one of the places where blues had its birth according to i think it's leroy jones and blues people talks about that uh, maybe W.C. Handy went around these these lumber mills. And, and they're kind of an interesting social history in these um, lumber yards throughout the South. But that's the desperate class. The servile class are like the porters, the servants, the washerwomen, the people like his mother who, who sewed, although she was a northerner. And he sees these people as generally good and religious and moral, contrast to the desperate class. And then you have this middle class, which is what he basically wants to strive for it's going to be a bit frustrated in this because he does kind of take a few wrong turns in his life 
and at the end of chapter five, he, he gives up his life in Jacksonville and decides to go to the north. And he tries to go to New York and take part in that. And, you know, that's that's a choice that he makes when he leaves the factory. And he talks about how people went to different places, other places in Florida, but he decided to go north and, and try life there. And partially he was attracted to the cultural life in, in New York. And I think this restlessness is, is something I, I, I sort of appreciate. I'm not black, so I can't appreciate it from that point of view, but the, the, this kind of, you don't want to stay in one place too long. I've done that a lot in my life, but then there's costs with that. And these are costs I can attest to, you know, you, you don't get established. And he actually talked about how if he had stayed in that cigar factory, he could have been a skilled worker. You could have married and he could have had a decent life. He, he would have been one of that, that third class. He talks about like the, the work, the, you know, kind of the skilled workmen almost. Yet he kind of turns his back on that because he gets anxious and, and needs to move on. And that's going to be a common theme in the, in the second half of the novel, which eventually leads to him choosing to take on, just, just, just choose and just go, go on passing. To not go on passing, to choose to pass. Um, chapter six is, is a chapter where we really see the X-Colored Band get involved in, in the New York gambling scene. And we get a very interesting description of the gambling culture in in new york it's quite racially mixed actually there's mention here of, of asians who dwell in these places whites and blacks would you know be together in some of these clubs and pool halls and places and then it's through he kind of gets famous as a gambler and a kind of a, a club guy and then he you know reveals that he's a good musician and then he starts to get into the ragtime and he starts to get really attracted to ragtime and he learns how to play it and becomes quite good at it and he's he notices that many of the great ragtime musicians are black and he starts to kind of become attracted to that and move into that and he, he refines his musical abilities to be a ragtime musician here's how he describes ragtime because i, I think it's a Important. I don't know much about it musically or, or even necessarily historically, but it, it sounds like there's a lot going on that would be interesting to look into more. Quote, American musicians, instead of investigating ragtime, attempt to ignore it or dismiss it with a contemptuous word. But, but that has always been the course of scholasticism in every branch of art. Whatever new thing that people like is poo-pooed. Whatever is popular or spoken of is not worth the while. In fact, the fact is, nothing great or enduring, especially in music, has ever sprung full-fledged and unprecedented from the brain of any master. The best that he gives to the world, he gathers from the hearts of the people and runs it through the alembic of his genius. In spite of the bands which musicians and music teachers are placed upon, the people still demand and enjoy ragtime. One thing cannot be denied. It is music which possesses at least one strong element of greatness. It appeals universally. Not only the American, but the English, the French, and even the German people find delight in it. In fact, there is no one corner of the civilized world in which it is not known, and this proves its originality. If it were not imitation, the people of Europe, however, would not have found it a novelty. Anyone who doubts that there is a particular head-tickling, smile-provoking, joy-awakening charm in ragtime needs to hear only hear the skilled performer play a genuine article to be convinced. I believe that it has a place as well as the music which draws us from sighs to tears. And so he falls in love with ragtime. Chapter 7 is kind of a side chapter in which he just talks about the club and the kind of the clubs 
he attends. And it's just a little vignette about the people that attend these. They're, as I mentioned, interracial. They're very active places of social life. They're places of big business where a lot of money is spent. And they're really the center of social life in, in black New York City. But it's a place of, of interracial contact. So chapter eight, he just continues his life as a gambler. Eventually he needs to start making money because it's, you know, he wins some and loses some as a gambler. So he starts to work as a cigar holder again. And it is that for quite a while. He, he It's a pretty decadent life that he lives though. And the, the narrator is not like critical of himself. It's not like a morality tale where he thinks about how he, he lived this horrible life. It, it's just much more matter of fact of the you know and straightforward about the kind of life he he lived um but he play, starts to play ragtime and he catches the attention of this millionaire this white man millionaire and th this is where the narrative gets criticized if he kind of where he falls into this kind of servile relationship um with this this millionaire in fact i think it's actually the millionaire who who first tells him that that you shouldn't just like listen and enjoy ragtime you should actually play it and and so he helped convince them to to get into that that profession okay and then at the end of this chapter we get this scene uh, and i'll just read it because it's it's kind of striking one night shortly afterwards i went into the club and saw the widow sitting at a table in company with another woman she at once beckoned for me to come to her. I went knowing that I was committing worse than folly. She ordered a quart of champagne and insisted that I sit down and drink with her. I took a chair at the opposite side of the table and began to sip a glass of wine. Suddenly I noticed an expression on the widow's face, something that had, had occurred. I instantly glanced around until I saw her companion had just entered. His ugly look completely frightened me. His back was to me, to my, my, my back was to him. But by watching the widow's eyes, I judged that he was pacing back and forth across the room. My feelings were far from being comfortable. I expected every moment to feel a blow on my head. She too was very nervous. She was trying hard not to, to appear unconcerned, but could not succeed in hiding her real feelings. I decided it was best to get out of such a predicament, even at the expense of appearing cowardly. And I made a motion to rise. Just as I partly turned my chair, I saw a black fellow approaching. He walked directly over to the table, leaned over. The widow eventually feared that he was going to strike her, but she threw back her head. Instead of striking her, he whipped out a revolver and fired. The first shot went straight into her throat. There were other shots fired, but how many I don't know. For my first knowledge I heard of my surroundings and actions was that I was rushing through the chop suey restaurant into the street. Just which street I followed when I got outside, I didn't know, but I think I must have gone towards 18th, 8th Street and down towards 23rd, 8th Avenue and down to 23rd Street and towards 5th Avenue. So... Uh, this woman was a woman he was talking to b before, um, but this kind of revenge killing, this this murder of jealousy, may, forces him to flee. He gets picked up by the millionaire, the man, and that's when he decides to go with him, to leave, leave New York and go with him to, to Europe. Now, th this millionaire character is basically not racist. He doesn't, you don't really get the sense that he's a racist figure in fact he wants to do best for the ex-colored man and he actually genuinely thinks that pl him playing ragtime in europe would be better for him and better for his career and he won't be facing the same kind of racial prejudices he will in america but i think what bothers people about this relationship it is it is kind of this patronage relationship where he basically becomes a you know a groupie or so i mean i guess he's almost the groupie because uh the ex-colored man is a musician but you know, he's basically in a form of servitude to the millionaire 
and follows him around and plays music and does what he wants to do. And I think he has the best interest of the ex-color man in his heart, really. And he does have a very important conversation with them in chapter nine, where he talks to him about, why do you want to return to America? There's going to be so much better for you in, in Europe. So first he goes to Paris and he basically lives a life of leisure, playing ragtime and, and hanging out with the millionaire. He goes to the opera one day and he sees a man he recognizes his father with, with a girl that he determines is his sister. Or at least his half-sister. And of course there's a little bit of tragedy and regret over the over the, the, the fact that he couldn't have this relationship with his father and be part of that family. Uh, the opera they're seeing, by the way, is Faust, and I don't, I don't know if there's any symbolism there, but, it, you know, in a sense, does the choices he makes in his life represent a, a Faustian bargain? I, I don't know. Um, kind of a deal with the devil. I, I don't know. It's hard not to, to think that this symbolism exists in the choice that Johnson makes of including Faust in the opera and then placing his white father and his white half-sister in the audience. So they go to other places of Europe. They go to London for a while, then to Amsterdam, and then finally to Germany. And it's, yeah, it's in Germany where the ex-colored man decides to return to America. And this is when the millionaire has his chat with the ex-colored man, telling him, you know, don't do it. You know, you're better off in Europe and you can kind of live as a white person here. You can play ragtime. You could, you know, maybe even make a name for yourself, you know, and I'm, you, you'll, I'm your good friend. I'm not going back to America. And he, he thinks you, he's going back like for sentiment and perhaps meeting his father played a role in this. Um, and because if he can't be with his father, maybe he should embrace his black identity. But he, the, the millionaire thinks he's doing it to make a statement and he doesn't really understand the costs of, it, of, of what it means to go back to America as a black person. Quote, this idea of making yourself a Negro out of yourself is nothing more than a sentiment and you do not realize the fearful import of what you intend to do. What kind of Negro would you make now, especially in the South? If you had remained there, perhaps even in your club in New York, you might have succeeded very well, but now you would be miserable. I can imagine no more dissatisfied human being than an educated, cultured, and refined colored man in the United States. I've given more study to the race question in the United States than you may suppose, and I sympathize with the Negroes there. But what's the use? I can't right the wrongs, and neither can you. They must do that themselves. They are unfortunate having wrongs and rights, and you would be foolish and unnecessary to take their wrongs on your shoulders. Perhaps someday, through study and observation, you'll see that evil is a force, and like the physical and chemical forces, we can't annihilate it. We may only change its form. We light upon one evil and hit upon it with the might of our civilization but only succeeding in scattering into a dozen other forms. And quite a long speech he gives. And basically the conclusion of the speech is stay in, in Europe. But again, this kind of restlessness comes to him and this feeling that something's not right in his life. So he goes to back to America. So then we get to chapter 10. This is really the, the important chapter um, in which the decisions are made. And he really comes face to face with uh, race in America. The first person he meets is a black doctor who's educated, has a, a, kind of, he, a complex view of race in America, to say the least. He, he, is, he sees black people as progressing, but he also carries with him a lot of the middle class baggage in which he kind of sees that the whites are dealing with 
you know, not just the middle class and upwardly mobile blacks, but the desperate class, what uh, the ex-colored man earlier called the, the desperate classes. And that racism really comes out of that more than anything. And that he seems to think that black people have, you know, bear some responsibility for this impression that the white South has of them. He says, our detractors point to the increase of crime as evidence against us. Certainly we have progressed in crime as in other things. What less could be expected? And yet, in this respect, we are far from the point which has been reached by our more highly civilized white race. As we continue to progress, crime among us will gradually lose much of its brutal vulgar, I must say healthy aspect, and become more delicate, refined, and subtle. End quote. Now, bear in mind, the last thing that the ex-colored man saw in America before he went left for Europe was a, a very violent crime by a black man against a, a black woman. So he lives for a while in Washington with this man and then he decides to go back to the deeper south to atlanta and when he's there on the train he goes to the smoking car and i'm not quite clear here if if he's passing at this point if it's a white smoking car but i remember in some of the other works maybe it was in chestnut there was like the first class white car was like non-smoking and the smoking cars tended to be integrated and it was or the the colored cars allowed smoking i'm not sure how it works here but if he's passing or not but he he's privy to a conversation of white men about race in america and he hears the whole conversation and there's several characters here there is a jewish man who just sort of hangs out there there's a professor who is i think probably doesn't like what he's hearing from the more racist members, but he keeps quiet because he doesn't want to, I guess, fight. And there's a Texan who's basically the racist figure. And then there's this Union soldier who's the racial egalitarian. Now, the interesting thing is it's it's kind of the more lower class people who actually fight this battle out. And it, the professor who is supposed to be the one who kind of can rise above these debates and, and come to a logical objective conclusion just kind of sits on his hands throughout this entire conversation so it really becomes a fight between the texan and the and the the uh the civil war veteran who who fight it out it's actually just a fascinating conversation and if, if you just read this chapter, I think this is worth reading. It even almost stands out as a short story um, about about these kind of discussions. And then they take place in the smoking car. Everyone's smoking cigars. Cigars come back into the narrative this way. And the narrator just sort of listens to it and watches it. And, and he comes out of it rather optimistic. He thinks there's grounds for a conversation, I think. I think that's the conclusion he comes to here, that there's a foundation for a conversation between about race and there are white people who understand the complexity of this issue. It's, and from debate, we can get progress. I think that's where the narrative's narrator's optimism, the ex-colored man's optimism, comes from. And he says, The sentiment of the Texan, and he expressed the sentiment of the South, feel like me, fell upon me like a chill. I was sick at heart. Yet I must confess that underneath it all, I felt a certain sort of admiration for the man who could not be swayed from what he held as a principle. Contrasted with him, the young Ohio professor was indeed a pitiable character. And all along, in spite of myself, I had been compelled to quote the same kind of admiration to the southern white man for his manner in which he defends not only his virtues, but his vices. He knows that, judged by a higher standard, he is narrow and prejudiced, that he is guilty of unfairness, oppression, and cruelty, but that he defends as stoutly as he would his betters. This same spirit obtains a greater degree among blacks, as they too defend their faults and failings, end quote. 
Now, unfortunately, he's going to learn things later on in this chapter, which show that this is like a false front, that that the reality of the White South isn't principled debate. It's violence and horrific violence. And I'll, I'll just jump to that now. Now, he sees a preacher named John Brown, a significant name, who kind of doing a kind of a mass religious rally. So he sees this aspect of the Black South, this kind of the spirituals and the religious aspect of it, something he really was aloof from his entire life. He never experienced that before. And it does make him feel good about himself. And, you know, it's, it's something attractive to him. And he is a musical figure after all, a musical character. But it's a few days into his stay. I think it's in, I'm not sure where it is. Is it Macon? I, you know, it's down in Georgia. And then he witnesses a lynching. That's what he sees. And he sees one of these people he referred to earlier in the story as one of the desperate classes, rounded up by a mob of white people and burnt alive um, by, by this mob. So he, he sees a straight up lynching. And this kid convinces him that what he saw in this in the smoking car is a luxury of white people sitting around talking about race. It's not how black people actually experience race, which is through violence and various forms of oppression. Ultimately, racial violence is the, is the way the color line was maintained in, in the Jim Crow South. And that's what he witnesses. And this is kind of the wake up call for him, that he has to make a choice. And that choice can't be based on falsehoods or perceptions or, or kind of rose colored glasses. He's going to have to face the reality of what it means to be black in America. And you could respond that his choice is a bit cowardly because he, he doesn't really make the choice of passing the way other characters in you know, some of the other stories we looked at did, like Chestnut in, in Chestnut's novel, The House Behind the Cedar. Someone had to make a conscious choice and plan for it, make a break with his life. Now, he doesn't have an old life. He doesn't have a father he can go to. He, his mother's dead. He, I mean, he kind of left the millionaire, so he doesn't really have to make a choice so much. So what he does is just kind of de facto pass. So he just decides if people are going to assume I'm white, I'm going to live as a white person, right? And and so that's what he does. Now, to make it easier, he goes to New York to make this choice where, you know, he, he can do this a little bit easier. And and so that gets us to the end of the story. He, he goes back to school. He goes basically to become a clerk. Um, a bureaucrat in a business and he eventually meets a, a white woman never you know he never really tells her he's black or that he's passing he just lives as a white white man with her and he marries and and basically the story ends they end up having kids and his wife dies but and he justifies his choice to pass at the end, because it was good for his kids, it's good for his children, good for his family, and and you know, but he has some regret as he watches. Then he he's able then to watch the discussions of race and racial uplift and the challenges black people are facing, you know, from outside the veil now, from the perspective of a, of a white man, and then he. He has some regret for it. The way he puts it is, I have sold my birthright for a mess of pottage. Or maybe maybe he did this. It's it's not quite a definite statement, but he thinks maybe he did it. But, you know, whatever. These are the choices he made, and he kind of goes with it. And that's that's the novel. Uh, 
the autobiography of the next colored man. And I know it took me a lot to talk about it, almost an hour, but it is only about 100 pages, so it's a very efficient novel, a lot goes on. I think, you know, for me, because I've read so many stories about passing in the last year or so, I think the most interesting thing about this particular novel is its description of the social life, particularly, I, I was most fascinated by the cigar rolling industry and especially among the Cubans and, and what that was like. And I'd like to know more about that. And I may try to seek out other works, maybe a hist historical work that looks at that particular industry. Um, but that's it. So, um, you know, what does this mean for understanding Johnson's own life? I'm not sure. It's something I'm going to think about as I go through chapter by chapter um, along the way, along this way, which is his autobiography. This autobiography, by the way, that we're going to be looking at is like five, almost 500 pages. It's, yeah, maybe 450 pages or so. I'm not going to do it over five episodes, though. It's in four parts, so that'll make a nice four episodes. So I'll just look at it one part at a time over the next four episodes. And as much as I can, I'll, I'll talk about where there's some overlap because the autobiography of the next colored man is obviously fiction, but there are moments in which they're kind of crossovers where he's drawing from his own life, certain experiences and things. Um, it is a ponderous work. It, it's long, and it, it's not the kind of work I would normally read. Um, but, you know, let's see what we get out of it. It's it's got its, it's got its moments. So that's what's up next along this way. And I'll, I'll study it over over four episodes. Uh, so, again, thank you so much for listening to this podcast and supporting it. If you want to know more about turn of the century black writers, you can go back and listen to my series on Charles Chestnut and W.B. Du Bois or go back way you might have to use a search function to find it, but way back about a year ago, I did a series on Harlem Renaissance writers. And there I looked at like nine novels over the course of a couple months. So go back and listen to that. Um, but uh, if not, just stay, stick with me. And in the next week, we'll, we'll look at Johnson's actual life, the life he lived and the experiences he had in his autobiography of Longest Way. Treading on path through the blood of the sun.